around October 31st, my family and I were actually in Nebraska at that time, and we were walking around the neighborhood, and one house stood out. It had a gothic kind of look with skulls, ghosts, and other reminders of death. What holiday prompts such decorations of skulls, ghosts, and darkness? I'm pretty sure you understand where I'm going with this. We call this holiday Halloween. It once had a different name that uh, I can't really pronounce, but Samhain or something to that degree. The History Channel notes that the Celts believed that on the night before the New Year, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred. And on the night of October 31st, it was believed that the ghosts of the dead returned to earth. So the celebrations included sacrifices to their gods, costumes, and fortune-telling. In fact, the World History Encyclopedia notes that the use of costumes was an attempt to trick the bad spirits from harming them so they could communicate with their dead loved ones. Because they believed that the veil between the spirit world and the human world had been torn, they thought that on this particular night, they could be visited by a loved one, but they also feared that they could also be visited by an evil spirit or some otherworldly creature. Well, Halloween has obviously developed from these origins, and it looks very different for those who practice it today. Elements of darkness still appear in the decorations. So if you look at the decorations, they don't really, they're, not, they're not really the fun, have a, have a candy type. That, that's not the emotion I get from skulls and ghosts and death. So the decorations are kind of more consistent with the origins of Halloween than the actual practice that we have now. But I'm not speaking against Halloween, though it definitely sounds like that. I want us to contrast the decorations of Halloween with some different decorations that we've recently seen around Christmas time. You'll notice that there's a stark difference. What kind of decorations do people generally use, meaningfully or not meaningfully, to celebrate the birth of Christ? Well, notice how it's light. The predominant thing that you use is light. You look at the Strings of light on the houses, the blow-ups, you know, and, and the lawn. It's all lit up. So how we celebrate often tells us a little bit about what we're actually celebrating. And so if the, the choice of decoration is death and skulls and can we, can we look like a haunted house, that's probably telling us something. When we see lights... And joy, that's probably telling us something. And that all goes back to the meaning of what has just been celebrated about a week ago here. And John 1 brings out the emphasis of light in the birth of Christ, which is one of the main reasons why light is so prevalent in the celebration of Christmas. So in John 1, 68, we see that light is a natural antidote to darkness. In verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, light and darkness cannot exist together. We know this every time we flip on a switch, and if the light bulb's actually working, (laughs) what happens? We see light, and darkness disappears. They literally can't exist physically together. And what we see is that this is an example, spiritually as well, The spiritual light of Christ 
is what dispels the darkness. And so what we see here in John 1, verses 6 to 8, is that John bears witness to the light so that all nations would see the glory of God in the revealed Christ. So let's read John 1, 6 to 8, and then we'll, we'll pray. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you that you have sent us light in the form of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask that as we consider your word this morning, may you give us hearts to hear about this light. I ask that you be with my voice and my heart, that I will speak only that which is right and true. And we ask, Spirit of God, that you would grow us this morning to the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We see here in these verses a predominant theme of witness. If you noticed, that word is used three times. John came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Then again, he came to bear witness about the light. So we see that John is being presented as this witness to the light that has come. This could be a little bit confusing because John is talking about John. We know John, the writer of the Gospel of John, a close disciple of Jesus, one of the inner three. He's writing about another John here in verse 6 who we know as John the Baptist. That becomes very clear if you read verses 19 to 34. It actually says that it is John the Baptist who he's referring to. But it's interesting that as we think about John the Baptist as the witness, the passage later on also refers to the Old Testament. To help us understand the meaning of John the Baptist and what kind of witness John the Baptist is. So in Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, which was helpfully read in the service, you noted that there was this voice, right? In Isaiah 40, 3 to 5, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And later on in verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the Old Testament here in Isaiah is prophesying that there will be a voice that will come. Somebody will come with a a certain message. Will come proclaiming the way of the Lord. This voice would be for the purpose of preparing the people to see the Lord. As you read farther in Isaiah 40, you notice this this twice statement in Isaiah 40 that a herald has come, right? 
a herald to Jerusalem, a herald to Judah. This voice would be a herald, a proclaimer, that the Lord has come. It also says, you know, behold. If you look there, back in Isaiah 40, actually just as they were reading it, I was reminded, again, of the extent of Isaiah 40's prophecy, actually, of John the Baptist. He's a voice crying, but what kind of voice is he? He's a herald of good news in verse 9 there of Isaiah 40. Twice he's a herald of good news to Zion, to Jerusalem, to the cities of Judah. And what does this voice say? Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might. So John the Baptist is this forerunner, this voice crying in the wilderness, specifically that people would see the coming of God himself. That's the context of Isaiah 40. And so we see that John the Baptist is this foreigner who would prepare the way for the Lord to come to his people. There's another prophecy in Malachi 4 that speaks more about this witness of John the Baptist. In Malachi 4, uh, verses 2 to 6. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, as they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is another common prophecy that's linked to John the Baptist in other passages. And here this forerunner is not only this one who will prepare the way for the Lord God himself to come and visit his people, but he's also going to come in, in this description as the son of righteousness who will rise with healing in its wings. That's another reference to light, right? The sun, obviously, is the, the, the biggest reason that we have light in this world. It's the source of light. It's what, it's what light, lightens everything around us. And so by, by referring to the one who will come as the son of righteousness, we have more explanation of, of what this light will actually do. It's a light that will bring righteousness. And so the question is, well, why is the light needed to bring righteousness. And we know that that reason goes back to Genesis 1 to 3. God creates this good world, right? This perfect world. He's given man everything he needs. He creates Adam. He creates Eve. He brings them together in the garden. And he gives them Eden. They're supposed to flourish. They're supposed to fill the earth from Eden. But instead of filling the earth and bearing the image of God like they were supposed to, they turn against God and rebel. And in their disobedience, Adam, the representative of humanity, brings death into this world. Sin becomes the the, the natural impulse of our hearts. And so God then proclaimed his judgment on those who had disobeyed. 
That would be the whole human race. And we see illustrated that this, this sin brought separation between God and mankind. And so we see that God dispels Adam and Eve from the garden. So no longer could mankind dwell with God because a holy God cannot dwell with sin. So there must be a separation now. And so the question of the whole Bible really is kind of, you can boil it down to this, how can a sinful people have a relationship with the holy God? How can we be restored to what once was but now is not? And that's why the one who would come would be the son of righteousness. The very thing that we lack is in fact righteousness. And because we lack that righteousness, we cannot enter into God's presence. So until we are a righteous people, we are God's enemies and we are under God's judgment and and we cannot dwell in his presence. So the darkness that has enveloped the whole world through sin and death can only be vanquished by the son of righteousness whose light will bring the healing that this world so desperately needs. And so the forerunner is this messenger who proclaims that the, the God himself will visit his people and he will visit his people with a particular mission. He will visit his people as the son of righteousness who will rise with healing in its wings. That broken relationship between God and mankind will be healed through this one who will come. And John the Baptist's role was to reveal who that is. And so we see in verses 19 to 34, we see how John the Baptist reveals, or probably better said, how God reveals who this coming one is through the testimony of John the Baptist. And we're going to see this in three, three key ways. I think that here, John the Baptist's proclamation of who Christ is, is directly connected to three specific offices in the Old Testament. That of prophet, priest, and king. So if you look at verse 19 here in John 1, helpfully, the... And this is the testimony of John. So if you're wondering, what is John's witness? What is John's testimony? We thankfully have a very direct answer right here in the text. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So there's some confusion about who John the Baptist is, right? People have very different ideas, and they're trying to to get get a thumb on who exactly is this guy, John the Baptist. Why is he in the wilderness baptizing people, proclaiming a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? If you read the other accounts of John the Baptist's proclamation, he's not particularly nice to the Pharisees. He's got some pretty harsh criticism 
of the Pharisees and the scribes and their religious leaders. And so it creates a bit of a stir. And so people, specifically the ones he's criticizing, they want to know, basically, what's the basis of your criticism? Who are you and and what authority do you have to bring these criticisms or, or proclaim this message of repentance and forgiveness of sins? And possibly, and it seems like, based on their questions, that Maybe he seems a little bit like the one who was supposed to come from the Old Testament prophecies. Because they specifically ask him, right? Who he is. And the first thing John says is, I'm not the Christ. (laughs) So there seemed to be some idea there. Why would he say that? And why would he just volunteer this idea, I'm not the Christ, if he didn't think that there was possibly something maybe stirring and people may be getting this idea that maybe he's the one who will come. Because remember, here in the chronology of events, John the Baptist bursts on the scene and for 400 years they've not seen a prophet. Right? For 400 years they've heard nothing from God. Around 400 years. The end of the Old Testament, which in the Hebrew order ends with Second Chronicles, so the last thing they would have read is the end of 2 Chronicles. And if you've read the end of 2 Chronicles recently, it's pretty bleak. Right? Chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles ends with the, the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the exile of God's people, seemingly, again, repeating what happened in Eden. God's people break God's covenant, the relationship is broken, and God is exiling them from his presence yet again. But at the very end of of 2 Chronicles 36, we have this proclamation of Cyrus, right? Sending the people back. And so we get this picture of restoration. Everyone in Israel knows that the meager trickling of people back to Jerusalem does not fulfill the prophecies, the the magnificent prophecies of God restoring his people. They they knew this, this wasn't it. This was a foretaste. This was God signaling that there will be a restoration, that God has not neglected his people forever. But yet God waits 400 years. And the 400 years is a fairly significant amount of time, is it not? It's more than four times most people's lifespan. So four, over four generations have come and gone, and they've heard nothing from God. And all they have is the end of Second Chronicles 36. So they're clinging to this There's going to be a restoration. They're looking at these prophecies. There's going to be this one who's going to come. There's going to be redemption. There's going to be restoration. But they've heard nothing for this length of time. And so John the Baptist just burst on the scene with this message of repentance for forgiveness of sins. And you can imagine that creates a stir. Because now there's a prophet. And they're aware of the prophecies because they ask him, Are you Elijah? the one who's who's to come before before the Lord comes. Interestingly, John the Baptist denies he's Elijah, but Jesus himself later will actually say that John the Baptist is Elijah. So it appears that John the Baptist himself doesn't even know possibly the fullest extent of his witness. But he does recognize that he is the one of Isaiah 40. Right? That's pretty clear. He recognizes that that he's the one who will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. But as was read in the scripture reading, 
Remember that John the Baptist recognizes that the one who will come is greater, right? He's not even worthy to untie the sandals of the one who will come. So John the Baptist is, is, is portraying the one who's going to come as a greater prophet. Not like him. A greater prophet. We see this in John 1, 1, too, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The prophets were the ones who brought the Word of God to the people. Remember? In the Old Testament? The prophet would, would hear a message from God, and it would bring that message to God's people. Well, Jesus is a greater prophet because he doesn't have to wait to hear a message from God. He is the message, Right? He's greater because he doesn't really talk about what God has said, but he himself is the walking word, and he directly communicates God's word to God's people. And so the, the witness of John the Baptist is first that Jesus is this greater prophet, and this greater prophet is prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. So again, the Jews understood Deuteronomy 18 because that seems to be why they ask, are you the prophet? In Deuteronomy 18... The word of God says, and I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, they shall speak in my name. I myself will acquire it of him. So there's this prophet figure that's supposed to come. And the Jews know that. And what John the Baptist says is, I'm not that one who's to come. but I'm the one, the voice crying in the wilderness to show you who that greater prophet actually is. Well, not only is he the greater prophet, but John, John the Baptist also presents Jesus as the greater priest. In verse 29 of John 1, the next day he, speaking John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That's an interesting way to present Jesus. And that language, Lamb of God, has a whole Old Testament understanding that they, the original hearers would have understood immediately. Why present Jesus as the Lamb of God? When Isaiah 53, 7, there's this prophecy of a lamb. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. So Isaiah in, in, in chapter 53 had already prophesied that somebody will come and he will come like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. But Isaiah 53 also has a, a bigger background. This picture of a lamb that is slaughtered goes back to the Passover sacrifice in Exodus 12. Remember how God pictured the restoration of God's people through the redemption of God's people from Egypt. God's people had become enslaved down in Egypt. And so God sent Moses down there to bring God's people back out. But Pharaoh didn't like that idea, right? Pharaoh liked the slave labor. He wanted his palaces built. 
He was also afraid that the people would be too great and they would one day overcome him. And so there was fear, there was greed, there was lots of things going on. And Pharaoh says, no, nah, I'm not going to let these people go. And so there's a series of plagues that God sends on Egypt. And these plagues culminate in the last one where God says he's going to send a destroyer that will kill the firstborn son in every household. And God offers one way to escape the death that would come from that destroyer. And that way was for them to kill a lamb, and the specific requirements are a male lamb, a year old, without blemish. A perfect male lamb. And this lamb was to be slaughtered, and the blood was to be put on the doorpost, and when the death angel would pass through, if the, when, the, when the angel saw the blood on the doorposts, that house would be spared from death. This was a picture of redemption. The picture is that we're enslaved to sin and death. And the only way that humans can be spared from the death that is a result of their sin is for them to be covered with the blood of the perfect male lamb. Hebrews makes it clear to us that it's not the lamb that had any redeeming quality. But this lamb was a picture. And so Isaiah 53 is picking up on this slaughtered lamb image and it helps us understand a little bit more about that and says that like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. So Isaiah 53 helps us understand that this perfect male lamb is a picture of a a righteous sufferer who will be slaughtered like that lamb and whose blood would bring restoration between God and his people. And Isaiah 50 tells us how the slaughtered Passover lamb will actually bring that restoration. And Isaiah 53 highlights two ways. So if you read verses 10 to 11, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when the soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Remember how we noted that the one who is to come is called the son of righteousness? And the one thing that we need, that we don't have, is in fact righteousness. And so this slaughtered lamb of God is the only one that can bring us the very thing that we need. That is righteousness. And how does he do that? Well, first, the slaughtered lamb will bear the iniquities of the people. See, the first problem is we have a debt, right? We owe something. We're sinners, But we can't pay that debt. We can't do enough good things to counteract all the sinful things that we've already done. If we were to look at this as a ledger, and we were to put our good works and our bad works on a scale, we're never going to even break even. (laughs) In fact, elsewhere in Isaiah, the things that we think are righteous, what does God call? Filthy rags. So even the very things that we think, oh, that's in the righteous column, God has already explained to us, those are all filthy. Those aren't actually even righteous. 
So the problem is we, we, we've accrued su- such a great debt that we can never pay off. And that debt first has to be paid or there can be no relationship. Once again, the holy God cannot dwell with the sinful people. The sin must be taken care of. And so that is why the son of righteousness comes to pay the debt that sinners could never pay themselves. But it doesn't stop there. The second thing this righteous sufferer will do is he will credit the people with righteousness. And so this is accounting language, the idea of credit. If you go to your bank account, you're going to have two columns. Not, I'm not talking about credit cards and debit cards, so don't get confused. <laughs> but if you go to your bank account, you'll see you have debit or credit. And the debit is what you owe. That's the one we don't like to see. <laughs> and the credit is what you actually have. And the picture is, we, we got a lot of debit over here. We got a lot of debt. And Christ takes that debt on himself when he dies. And he replaces the debt with the credit of his righteousness. And so the son of righteousness rises with, with healing in its wings by taking that debt on himself and replacing it with the very righteousness that he alone can earn. That's how the holy God can dwell with people once again. Because those people aren't sinful anymore. They've been given a credit of righteousness. Their sin has been removed. In terms of their standing with God. We all, for clarification, we recognize that we're still sinners even after Christ's death. But the difference is that sin has been paid for. And we stand before God, not in our sins, but robed in the righteousness of Christ. And so Christ is the slaughtered lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And then finally, Christ is also the greater king. And throughout the Old Testament, there's quite an emphasis on this king who will come. It's most clearly explained in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This prophecy speaks about this son who will come. The son is spoken as both a son of David, an offspring that will come from you, speaking of David, this king from David who will come and establish the throne of God. But this son is also referred to as a son of God here in 2 Samuel 7. The I is God speaking. So God is saying, I, God, will be to him, this son of David, a father, and he, this son of David, shall be to me a son. So the son of David is both a human born through the line of David and the Son of God. And this is a reference to Christ, and we see this here in John 1. If you look there in verse 33, 
We'll start in verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he was sent to me. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John explains Jesus, as great, a greater prophet than he is, is the greater prophet of Deuteronomy 18. As the greater priest, specifically in the fact that he is the Lamb of God, he's the, the offering, the sacrifice that would take sin, and he's the greater king, the son of David, the son of God. He's the one who will restore the relationship between God and sinners. He's the one who will establish the kingdom of God. So if we bring all this together, here's my, my summary statement of the, the witness of John the Baptist. Here's John's witness. That Christ is the son of righteousness who offered himself as a slaughtered lamb of God to pay the sin debt and rose as the Davidic king to credit sinners with righteousness so that through faith, the light of God shines in the darkness of their hearts to heal the broken relationship between God and sinners. This is the message of John the Baptist. And notice that this message of John the Baptist, this witness of John, has a particular purpose. In verse 7 of John 1, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. See, this isn't just really cool knowledge. This isn't like, wow, I saw something new. And it's, I think it's exciting. Don't get me wrong. I think it's very exciting how we see Christ in the pages of the Old Testament. But the point of it is not just we've gained new knowledge or we've, we've seen something that we haven't seen before. The point of seeing Christ is that it would prompt faith in Christ. The point is not that we, we grow in mere knowledge, but that we, this knowledge that we gain drives us to see Christ more fully and either gives or grows faith depending on where you are. This is the message, really, of the whole book of John and the whole Bible. If you turn to John 20, at the end of the book, John circles back with a very similar statement. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The life was, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, right? John 1. So the book of John is really bookended by these two, this two, these two ideas. Jesus is the light, and because Jesus is the light, the Son of Righteousness we must believe in him to have life. Beyond believing that truth, there's a corollary command given as well. That as John the Baptist was a witness to who Christ is, so we are too. In John 20, 21, again, Circling back to the end of the book, Jesus tells his followers, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
You see, I don't think we should look at John the Baptist's witness and be like, that was, that was the John the Baptist thing. Obviously, there are some things that are particular to John the Baptist. We're, we're, not, we're not part of the means of revealing Christ for the first time, right? John the Baptist fulfilled a very specific picture, being that Elijah who is to come, that one who will, in fact, present um, Christ to the nations. But we stand after the cross. After the birth of Christ. And our witness is, is a witness of looking back on what Christ has done. And on who Christ is. And that concept of being a witness is really throughout the Bible. At the end of Luke 24, Jesus actually says, in verse 45, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So John the Baptist is obviously a witness, a forerunner of who Christ is. And God uses the witness of John the Baptist to proclaim and reveal who Christ is. And that concept of being a witness is continued. And it's applied directly by Jesus to us who come after And we have been sent. We're not passive. We've been sent with this very same message, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We should go about in the way of John the Baptist, proclaiming Jesus as the greater prophet, the greater priest, and the greater king, as the only one who can restore sinners to a relationship with the holy God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So as we think about these, we'll close with three implications of what this means for us. One is, because the witness of Christ has been recorded, we don't need to add to the testimony of Scripture. One of the beauty, beautiful things about the Bible is that we don't have to wait for a revelation from God to know what to speak. Right? In the Old Testament, they had to wait until it was recorded. But the, the whole Bible hadn't been written, and so they, they would get pieces of the Bible, and they get another piece. They have to wait you know, hundreds of years, get another piece, and, and eventually the whole word is written, and they can read it. We live in a time where We've been given the full revelation of Christ. We're not waiting for for more revelation to come to us. We don't need to add to it, and we should not add to it, and we shouldn't take away from it. We've been given the message, and it's in 66 books. Scripture is sufficient testimony to the truth of what the Word communicates. We have the Word. We have the truth. And one of the things that is easy to do. It's easy to forget that and focus on the parts of the Bible that we like better, right? I think we're all kind of guilty of doing this from time to time. There are some portions that are easier for us, that for some reason maybe appeal to us, and there can be an emphasis to, to really focus on that. So uh, maybe you've come across something like this before. We only want to talk about the love of God, right? God loves people. That's a true statement, but some take it to an extreme. That's all some want to talk about. 
Because they want to talk about how God loves everybody. And, and they're going to they're form a whole, a whole theology around God's love. But they don't want to talk about God's wrath. Because that to them is not consistent with God loving people. So we, 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 have to, we have to not think about the angry God of the Old Testament. We want the nice Jesus of the New Testament. Have you heard things like that before? Uh, we, we, just, we just want to focus on the positive statements. And we want to get rid of the negativity. And the things that uh, are kind of hard for us to hear. We don't want to hear that. We just want to hear how God loves everybody and cares for everybody. And if we emphasize that, we're going to get along better. It sounds great, but the problem is, is it's not what the Bible says. The Bible presents both the love of God and the wrath of God. And if we're going to really understand who Jesus is, he's the one who saves people, and he's also the one who sends people to hell. Who speaks of hell more often than anybody else in the Bible? Jesus. And so you see, if we, if we take just one thing and make that the thing that we only want to see, we've, we've not really proclaimed the true message. We've made a message that appeals to us, but the kind of witness we're supposed to be is the witness that presents the whole truth. The whole truth of who Christ is and what he has done. In order to do that effectively, I would argue that you can't just focus on the New Testament and you can't just focus on the Old Testament. (laughs) We need both Testaments. We need an interconnected Bible And the point of it all is the Old Testament revealing who Christ is and the New Testament showing how it all points to Christ, who he is and what he has done. And then lastly, as John was sent as a witness to the revealed Christ, so we have been sent as a witness of Christ to all nations. This is our task Every one of us here are sent. Some of us are sent overseas. Some of us are sent in America. Wherever you are located, wherever you address that you have, you are sent to that community. And you are sent with the very message of who Christ is. So my encouragement to you today is, remember, Remember your witness. And be intentional in your communities. You have the light of Christ. You may not decorate your house with strings of light, and that's fine. (laughs) But whether or not you decorate your house, you yourself have inside of you the very light that those decorations are expressing. What kind of house do we have in our communities? Are we the kind of house that everybody in that community knows that we're the people who have the light? That can go good or bad for us in some ways, right? Darkness hates light, so being a light and people knowing you're a light may bring opposition. But it goes both ways. The only way to reach our communities is if people know that we have something, that we have that light. And letting that light shine is is the call that we've been given. Remember, Matthew talks about 
not hiding our light under a bushel. We have the light within us. We have the light of Christ. And it's the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So I I urge you, your communities are filled with darkness, and there are so many ways we see that darkness day in and day out. But a different political leader is not going to fix anything in our communities. It's not going to bring light. Whether we like it or don't like it, or you know, none of that, it's not going to make a difference. The only way that we can actually bring light that will dispel darkness is if we proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. And if the gospel of Jesus Christ is what shapes our life and what's on our lips, that is the only thing that will transform hearts. So let's not get caught up in all the external things that we think will fix the issues of the day. Let's be caught up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let that light shine through us. We'll end with this quote from a theologian. The apostles likewise are particularly called light because they go before holding out the torch of the gospel to dispel the darkness of the world. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you that you, you are the light. And you have chosen to shine your light through us. Vessels that were once vessels of darkness, but you have transformed. We were once filled with very darkness that we see around us. We were once your enemy, just headlong in pursuit of error and rebellion. But you have reached down and you have changed the course of our life. You shone the light in the darkness in the face of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, you have dispelled darkness. And you have brought us into that light purely by your wonderful grace. And so we ask, Father, make us witnesses. Make us witnesses of that light that has been revealed in Christ. Father, there are many fears that we all have. There are many obstacles to being a light. Overcome them, we pray. Take away our fear and give us courage. Give us courage to speak boldly about how you have changed us. To speak boldly about Christ as the slaughtered Passover lamb. We long to see our neighborhoods filled with those who worship you. We long to see the light of your gospel so transform the houses of our communities that the symbols of death and darkness are burned. They're cast off. And in the place of the symbols of death, we see images of light. This is your work. Send us into our communities, we pray. Embolden our witness for the sake of your great name. It's through Jesus, our priest, our prophet, our king, we pray. Amen.